I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We're going to do a two-hour piece today. Forrest is with us, uh, of course, this week. She's doing better after her horse chasing last weekend. And uh, Tom, would you like to introduce our guest? We're going to talk to our guest first, then we'll do the Q&A later on. So, Yes, absolutely. We have Danny and Sarah. They're from Oregon. And Sarah's got some great background on the topic from uh, her, her tribe. And Danny has a sighting. So uh, we're going to bring them on. But before we do that, I want to thank everybody for... Uh, you know, for dialing in today and if you like the show let us know click the like and subscribe button if you haven't subscribed already and if you want to support us you can do so we have a link for patreon in the description so i'm going to hand this off to danny and sarah and start from the beginning tell us about your bigfoot encounter and just fill us in well, thank you so much for the introduction, and uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. So, uh, and I had a really wonderful time talking to you on the phone the other night. I just wanted to say that. So, um, we go back to uh, Livingston, Montana, 1999. Um, you know, at that time, I was definitely aware of Bigfoot and interested in all cryptozoology, but I had never really heard of Bigfoot in Montana. Uh, this at that time, actually, I was under the impression that it was really only in the Western United States and Harry and the Hendersons and, you know, Gifford Pinchot National Forest and Washington and this thing. Um, so I, I had never looked for Bigfoot ever in my life up, up, up to this point. Um, but uh, one of my, uh, I was in a band and the drummer of our band is, is Lakota. And so he, and I had had many, many conversations about Bigfoot. And then our bass player in the band, who I had the siding with, uh, is a geology major, anthropology minor. So um, he was a scientist. But at the time, he was a fry cook, a uh, fry cook scientist. But um, definitely somebody with a background in uh, anthropology. And so I vividly recall having a conversation during practice one night about Bigfoot and about um, whether or not it, it could exist. And uh, our friend was saying that, you know, there's nothing in the fossil record and it's an impossibility. And so we we definitely had conversation. Um, so in 1999, we were touring and um, playing in all of the big cities of Montana, such as it is, long distances in between. We had played a show the night before and we got up really early, I, I think because one of us had to go to work. But we got up really early and loaded up the van and and started driving home. Um, it was in August. The 
Big Sky Country uh, has a strange almost illumination in the morning before the sun comes up. So it was an early morning sighting with uh, without the sun being fully up, but definitely uh, bright enough to be able to see. We were headed uh, on the interstate between Livingston and Bozeman, Montana. We were headed east to Livingston. I remember we were talking about breakfast. Uh, we're going to get some bacon, and some biscuits and gravy, and we're just excited to almost be home. We are uh, directly on the interstate. Um, to our right is a frontage road, and then there is kind of grassy hills that go up. They're not mountains, they're hills. Livingston kind of sits right at the beginning of the plains. So this is a sparsely... Uh, sparsely populated area with some trees but it's pretty open it's pretty wide open and you would see lots of animals there crazy amounts of animals um herds of deer that are mind-boggling and so animals are just a really common sight there um at this so as we were headed uh, down the down the highway i noticed off to the right a Seemingly very, very tall, bipedal creature walking next to a cattle fence. This creature was, I would say, if I when I've when I've Google Earthed it, it was about 125 yards, let's say, from the highway that we were driving down. So I couldn't see facial features. I couldn't see um, the sex of the animal, like Patty. I, I couldn't. It was just a really, really tall thing walking extremely fast but also i remember the fluidity of it i remember th as i was watching it thinking to myself man that thing is moving really fast and look how smooth it's walking next to this fence um uh, so to kind of paint a picture i'm i'm the driver of the van my bass player anthropologist is the passenger of the van and we are both seeing this thing at the same time I, uh, as I as I notice it, I kind of look forward and straighten the van. I'm pulling a trailer, so you know safety first and this kind of thing. But I I kind of straighten the van and I look back over and I see it walking. I kind of straighten the van again. I look, I see it walking. I kind of straighten the van again. I keep seeing it walking. Uh, this van that I'm in is a uh, cargo van basically. So once it went past the driver or the passenger side window, we couldn't see anything else. And I was thinking to myself, did I just see that? And I said to my friend, hey man, did, did you just see that? And his exact words were, I don't know what you saw, but I think I just saw Chewbacca. I mean, really honestly, it's the closest thing that I could ever compare it to at that distance. The color was a reddish brown color. <laughs> so much like a, so much like our friend from Star Wars that it's kind of mind boggling. Um, I think also at that point, I had never really heard of a reddish Bigfoot or never really thought about them being different colors. So that was something that kind of stood out to me right away. And um, so for whatever reason, we could, we could have stopped the van, we could have pulled over and we could have watched this thing continue to walk a sizable distance. Um, it was in a really wide open area in between two mountain passes. So in 
hindsight and as i've looked at it on google earth it seems apparent that it was moving from one of the mountain ranges to the other early morning we got super lucky to be able to see this thing in a situation where it's unambiguous it's either a bigfoot or it's some kind of a bipedal something that is covered in fur um at the time of day there is absolutely no possibility that it was like a, a person or someone trying to like hoax or prank. Um, but clearly after something like that happens to you, you go through all of those possible scenarios. You think about it. I, I mean, I still think about it all these years later. I think that for a while I was really obsessed by it. No, it's not. I don't think I was. I was completely obsessed by it for a long time. Um, but now it's a, I have a different kind of feeling about it and a different understanding. And a big part of that is, dating my Native American girlfriend. She's given me a lot of perspective and a lot of food for thought. Um, and I, I'm a person who I think is really open to that and trying to understand what it was that that we witnessed. I will tell you that my partner who was sitting next to me, who was the non-believer, I, I wouldn't say it's hyperbole to say that it shook him to his core. Um, I, I think that for him, it was a very difficult thing for him to believe that he saw. I think that when we first had the sighting in conversation, he wasn't sure. He he didn't even want to admit it, which is just really strange to have something where you're sitting next to someone and you're seeing the same thing. And he almost didn't want to admit it to himself. But many years later, when we had a conversation, he he has had time to process it. And um, now he's really good natured and funny about it, but uh, and and believes that we both had a a multiple witness sighting. Um, let's see. The one other thing that I just want to share about the sighting is that on the BFRO website, there's the geographical database. And when I went back to Montana last year and I, I got to go to my sighting location for the first time in 20 years, it was really an awesome experience for me. I was looking at the geographical database just to, just to see if there had been anything around the area. In Park County, where my sighting happened, there hadn't been another sighting, I, I don't think, since mine. However, in the next county over, Gallatin County, just a couple of years ago, on Trail Creek, which is essentially where we had our sighting, there were um, multiple tracks found. And I have to tell you, that was over the moon exciting for me. I, I was, to have that corresponding evidence it's not that it matters to me what anybody thinks about, you know, what when I talk to them about my sighting, and I do talk to people about it when when I get the opportunity. Um, it's it's more to have that kind of confirming piece of evidence just for myself, um, and to know that uh, indeed they are everywhere <laughs> on the entire planet. After you have that experience and you deep dive into it the way that I think a lot of people that have experiences do, it, it really becomes overwhelming when you think about what is really going on out there all over the entire planet. And, um, and so I feel blessed to have had the sighting in a location where it's unambiguous and there's no question. And at the same time, Sometimes when I talk to people about it and they are so sure that that they can't or don't exist, it's a very strange place to be, 
to know for a fact that someone is wrong, to know for a fact that every single time I go out in the woods, I could have another opportunity and another encounter. The last thing I want to say about that is in my 20 years since my sighting, I have been out countless hours in the in the wilderness and I've never found a thing. I've never found another track. I've never we've seen things that were strange out there for sure, but nothing that I could say for sure was a. And so that's interesting to me, too. Um, it, it somewhere in there is, is the answer. And I don't think that anybody has it. And I think that's why I love the subject so much is it's a never ending, uh, never ending adventure. And and it's free. That's the best part. Going into the woods is free. And everybody should do that as often as they possibly can, in my humble opinion. So that's a, that's a Danny, that's Danny, a really, that's good, a really perspective. good perspective. Um, um, quick, question. quick question. Do you ever, do you ever kick, kick yourself, yourself for not uh, stopping the van? Oh, well, that's like, I mean, you see this across the board with people that have UFO sightings people that have Bigfoot sightings, they're holding a camera and they don't take the picture for whatever reason. Of course. Yes. Uh, that is. And I don't know why that happened. I really don't know and don't understand why it happened. And frankly, without embracing the woo part of it, I don't have an answer for it. So, um, and there's two of us, neither one of us said, Hey, pull over the van. Let's, let's, let's just, you know, this might be something to watch. Let's check this out. And not only that, but our drummer, our Lakota drummer is asleep between us. He has a, a Bigfoot tattooed on him at that point. I mean, the fact that I didn't wake him up, the fact that I didn't share with him is something that is, it, it kind of is heartbreaking in a way. Because he's forgiven you yet. Oh, well, he's my research partner. and We spend all of our all of our time out there in, in the woods together. So what I hope happens now is that he's going to be looking to the left and he has a sighting while I'm looking to the right and I'll miss it completely. And then we'll both be equal and even. There you go. I, I, that's a good perspective. Um, <clears throat> you and I talked a little bit about the height of the fence and I did some research. I took a look at the state of Montana, they actually have ordinances, uh, statewide ordinance on minimum and maximum height of the fence. And the maximum height of the fence, if I read it correctly, I think, uh, and, and this was what, like one of those wire fences? Yes. Okay. And probably, probably a strand of barbed wire at top. Were the posts, and I'm asking you for details 20 years ago, do you remember if the posts were those red and white ones or they wooden or do you even remember? I'm going to say that they were wooden because when we were there this last year, <clears throat> we we had scoped it out pretty good. Of course, okay. we're, we're looking from the frontage road and it's on private property. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I do believe that they are wood. Okay. Yeah. I, I asked only because I, back a hundred years ago, I used to build fences. So, uh, um, so the, the height of the fence is 48 inches, according to Montana uh if i if i read it right their ordinance and you were so that's you know we got a four foot fence how how much taller than the fence was this thing yes so what i noticed was as it was fluidly walking next to the fence um it its hands as they swung back and forth seemed to be at the top of that fence 
So when they were at their, you know, six o'clock lowest position, they're at the top of the fence. Of course, people are notoriously bad witnesses and I'm driving 70 miles an hour. So this is my recollection of it actually at the time, because, you know, I, when it happened, I felt like it was a really important thing for me to report it to someone. I I don't really know why, uh, other than because I had no frame of reference for it being in Montana. I thought that that was an important thing and someone should know about it. So at that time is the very beginning of the internets and I did log into the BFRO and they did log, uh, categorize my sighting. Uh, it's in Park County, Montana. If anybody would like to read it, uh, van driver and passenger have Bigfoot sighting. Um, and so I'm really thankful that I did that because that is, that is imprinted. The story is, is as it happened in 1999, as I could recall it. So really all these years later, I kind of am just recalling that same story, but I'm, I'm really thankful that I, that you get locked in on that because obviously we all want to know the truth, but the truth of the matter really is I cannot give a, a, a true estimate because no, you, do, it, you do your best. You may, you yes, make that's your right. Best guess. That's right. And, and you got it memorialized. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, I want to ask Forrest real quick to jump in because your buddy who's a anthropology um, minor and geology major, he was his whole, before seeing this, his argument was, well, there's nothing in the fossil record. Forrest, what are your thoughts about, because a lot of people ask us that, well, there's nothing in the fossil record for Bigfoot. Um, what's, What's your professional opinion? Well, we don't have exactly, uh, we don't have a fossil record for uh, an animal exactly like Bigfoot. You know, of course, everybody knows about Gigantopithecus uh, Blackie, and that is over in the uh, China area. Um, And I think most anthropologists accept the fact that they probably were an orangutan type and uh, were quadrupedal rather than uh, bipedal. Of course, all uh, primates at some point in time stand up and walk on two legs uh, for short distances. But um, there is fossil records that they are finding in North America for primates and uh, lemur types and placimian uh, uh, types. So there is a fossil record for smaller animals. Um, nothing that leads us to believe that there was any type of uh, gigantism going on, but uh, who's to say what we'll find in the future? I mean, things are coming, uh, are discovered all the time. And uh, like I told you before, I have to keep reading up on the stuff because, I mean, so many things that have been found since uh, I went to school and that we never even knew anything about. Uh, when I was going to school, so um, you have what to about an explanation? What about an explanation for something that exists in the past and but didn't leave fossil evidence behind, or we haven't discovered the fossil evidence yet? Um, is that a valid assumption, or, or what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, of course, it's a valid assumption. I mean, look at man. We don't have any. Uh, we've cut so many missing gaps in the evolution of man, and um, we don't even know where some of the fossils that we have found figure into the, the record. And, you know, there's so many things. When you find a fossil, what you're looking at is a representation of thousands, maybe millions of specimens that are out there. You have to have absolutely perfect conditions um, for fossilization to occur. I mean, you can you can look at it all the time with uh, the uh, dinosaur record. I mean, they find these, and those were huge animals versus the smaller primate uh, animals. And so to find uh, anything in the fossil record is sometimes just luck. And like I say, you have to have absolutely special conditions for this fossil to occur. And when we found fossils, that's exactly what they are. They're special conditions. And, um, and usually it's only one individual. So, um, Okay, it's, so it's, it's tricky. <laughs> you know, or, yeah, right, right. It's tricky. What are some of those conditions? I would think because the when you find a fossil, you're not finding the actual. It's got to be buried uh, immediately in usually dry conditions. The dry conditions, I think, is the key thing because if if it's true that Bigfoot sightings correlate with uh, locations of rainfall, and I'm not a scientist, but seems like a wet forest would be a really difficult place for well here's here's my input to. I, I went to the archaeological field school and worked on a couple of digs one of the things they talked about were the kinds of conditions where fossilization occurs and typically where there are forests like in north america or jungles those conditions are very very poor for fossilization if they occur at all well, they're acid. A lot of the forest uh, regions, the soil is very acid, right. and that doesn't—that is not conducive to fossilization at all. Right. Exactly. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to uh, bring Sarah in on this, and uh, Sarah, you've got some absolutely wonderful lore and history, tribal history of the creatures. But I want to start off with kind of a funny story that you and Danny had that you're sitting on the back porch and I of your house and I believe this was on the reservation. Yes. And Danny whistled and you just thought that was a fantastic idea or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so much. <laughs> well, first, thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to give a, a brief introduction. Um, I'm Sarah and I am an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. I'm Chinook, Umpqua, Rogue River, Kalapuya, as well as Cree with some Cherokee. Um, and I have grown up with traditions uh, and storytelling. Um, I'm also a tribal ethnobotanist, so I also spend a lot of time in the forest gathering, um, looking for medicines and foods, and play a role in helping others explore those items and things as well um, in the tribal community. So my connection to the forest and to these things is a sacred action, and I take my role very seriously in um, making sure that this information is uh, protected and um, 
respected in the utmost way possible. So I do appreciate you having me here to help uh, shed some light on it and give some indigenous perspective in an area that is a, a, a place where my my family and my community has been since time immemorial. Okay, and tell us, recount the story of the whistle, because I love that story. Well, we <laughs> we were on my back patio. Uh, we were actually in the hot tub. It was late at night. We were having a relaxing night after a hard day at work. Uh, it was dark. The stars were out. And we had just got done talking about some of these things, uh, tribal traditions and uh, Bigfoot, of course. And Oh, but first you should oh. tell them, you're not really even allowed to talk about that. At <laughs> yeah, that, So she was already on edge. <laughs> because, was already on edge. <laughs> and I was gently pushing and we were having conversation. But at this moment, yeah, so she was already a little bit on edge. There are some tribal taboos about when these stories should come out and things that should happen around them. So... It, it made me very nervous. Uh, we <laughs> So we were getting into it probably more than um, I had been comfortable with anyway. And Danny decided that he, in his adventurous spirit and his search for information and knowledge, that he wanted to put some of these things to the test. And he let out a large whistle, and I jumped straight out of the hot tub and ran right into the house. <laughs> <laughs> And why would that be? Well, <laughs> we believe that there are ways um, that our friends are called to us or pay extra attention to us. And one of those ways is through whistling or uh, calling out to them, calling their name, naming them specifically. We have some indigenous names for them that we keep sacred and some nicknames that we use to kind of work around that in a way. Our communities have had relationships with our friends for a really long time. We we believe that they've been around since time immemorial and are, they're probably older than human beings and we've had relationships with them since we came into existence and that includes agreements with how we are treated and how we treat them. Um, some might call those treaties, and among those things is that we don't call the out, call out their name because they could come to us and invite trouble. Um, there are stories in the Pacific Northwest about them taking children or women as slaves and raising them, um, keeping them in their communities, and there are stories also about some of the humans escaping and coming back to their human villages with stories of their captivity. Uh, some of them, some of the women having had children with them. And these are really, really old stories and traditions. So um, these are things that are passed down and we, we make sure that our children understand that we have to treat these things as sacred. So the, so the um, interaction isn't always positive. It can be negative with these things. Right, right. The majority of the time, it's not something that we want to invite into our lives. And right. if you gathering, if you were out, I, I was fascinated when I first met her that she was out in the middle of the woods by herself, <laughs> staying the night in her car, gathering the next morning. And that would mean that if you 
were gathering and one was there, you wouldn't even address it or look at it or pay attention to it. No, we we would leave the area. We would we would make sure that they understood that we were giving them space and respect and we would go somewhere else. <laughs> do you do you, then, do you know who Tom Seward is? No. He's he's a native fellow we've had on a couple of times from Vancouver Island and he, he talks quite a bit about uh Tronaqua and, and other names he's used. Mm-hmm. And that's what he said, you know, that um, typically, typically, and, and Forrest would agree with this, you know, a primate will let you know if they don't want you around. And and sure. these guys will too. Sure. And he said to basically well, to back out the way you came and leave and, and, you know, respect them. Yes. Have we ever run into a situation like that, Will? I'm just trying we to We did in September, here. you bet. <laughs> <laughs> and we left very quickly. Yeah, we had a about a five second, just a very few second. It was a democratic meeting. It was unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> we loaded up in the trucks and beat feet. But everybody was, wants that experience. But it was right? that's what everybody wants. Right. It was very clear. You know, I've had both kinds. Of, there are basically two kinds of experiences. You know, you you have the the up close and and personal one, and and I did that when I was sixteen with two of them not a happy experience and the second one i was in a car and it was across this river and it disappeared very quickly but we all got to see it that's that's the one everybody wants but the first one is the one you typically have (laughs) (laughs) well obviously all these years later to to think about a, a sighting that that is once again unambiguous is is really a a blessing and i don't think it's i don't think it's the norm for everyone so um and when sarah and i go out into the woods COVID gave us a lot of opportunity to uh, i at the time i was a restaurant manager so we were shut down and we're on the reservation uh, we were exploring her tribal lands and and spending as much time out in the woods as possible although the area where she just for what it's worth her her tribal lands a lot of that are being worked so it's a lot of timber and a lot of trucks. Is that in kind of... Western Montana near the Flathead Reservation? No, that's here in Oregon. Oh, in Oregon. I'm sorry. Yep. I don't. I don't think I, I explained that. We we actually the band moved from Montana out to Oregon in uh, in 2000. So right after that oh, happened. Oh, I see. Okay. And once I came out here, that was when I was really obsessed. And I, I spent so much time, especially in the Mount Hood National Forest and my favorite place in the world, which is the Dark Divide, mm-hmm. uh, the area between Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams, uh, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. So, but this location is uh, to the west of Portland and uh, a little south, southwest. Oh, okay. Yeah. I used to live and, in Vancouver, so I'm familiar with the area. Yes, yes. A lot of uh, interesting too. It's that Tillamook National Forest is is a lot of north south, very uh, big canyony type areas. And when you Google Earth it, it's especially Oregon. You see the clear, clear cuts uh, right away as you zoom in. But this area in particular near Hebo is an area that's very dense, and not a lot of clear cuts. But it's also really hard to get back in there. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and because my sighting happened from a vehicle, I spend as much time driving on back roads as I do 
uh, getting out and and hiking. Although we have just lost a whole lot of weight on a low carb <laughs> diet, so this summer I am ready to get out there and start hitting some hills. Because last year when I went out there with my lovely girlfriend, I was sucking air, and that's a little embarrassing. So this year I I might even lead the lead the pack. Uh, we we did have one curious thing that I will mention happen to us this last summer out in her tribal lands. Uh, we we were looking for – we could tell there was a ridge and that this ridge was going to have this amazing view and uh, and you can access it right from the logging road. The, the gates are closed but you can walk back in there. And So we were walking in and, and I was sucking air and, and we saw this really steep – uh, logging road and so we started going up and, and it was pretty far it was I'm not going to say a quarter mile but it felt like a mile to me at, at my 365 pounds at the time and when we finally got up there um, we we realized that oh this is not the spot to be able to see the really good view we're gonna have to walk back down and go around and so we kind of had a plan and of course this entire time we've been talking about what we might see and Danny has a propensity for whistling um, and so uh, well, and, already... and I sing. I sing a lot sings? in the woods, and I and I like to make up whimsical lyrics. And I'm just kind of a I don't know. It's just the kind of guy I am. And so we were definitely yes, it was on our mind as we were walking back down this very steep road, and it's forested on both sides. It's really thick, thick. Uh, thick some old growth trees, and then and then a lot of brush and cover, and you can't see five feet. In. It's dark in there. And it's dark Midday. in there too. Midday, yes. We're in the middle of the sun, but where we are is, you know, kind of one of those dark areas. So as we're stepping back down the this steep road, we hear a tree break that was maybe the loudest tree break I have ever heard in my life. And it was 10 feet from us off the side of the road and we both stopped and looked at each other and that Froze. frozen <laughs> and the I'm a baseball fan so I know what a really good crack of the bat sounds like I mean that's what this was it was so and we I think we just Sarah kind of she knows that not only are they out there, but there are other things out there too. And so <laughs> to her, she just kind of looks at me like, see, see what you get <laughs> where. And uh, so that was, that was a pretty cool thing mm -hmm. that happened. Who knows what it was. Um, but it the, did sound like a branch was being broken, not falling out of a tree. We know what tree branches falling sounds like. We know what crunching leaves and crunching branches sound like when deer or elk are moving through. We know what, bears sound like when they're scratching on trees or huffing around and this was a branch being broken and that was it and the birds were silent there was no <laughs> oh, other yes. sound in the woods it went silent completely silent still. and mm -hmm. still and it was i guys i want to inter interject for just a second i know exactly what you're talking about um i experienced that for the first time oh gosh not quite a month ago uh, in the lower Cascades with a friend and uh, we're hiking up there and I heard this loud crack and thought about it for about two seconds I'm like hey um why don't we head back to the truck like like five <laughs> seconds ago <laughs> I know the feeling well we did make it to the vista mm-hmm 
and it was gorgeous. And uh, and and actually, there's a really awesome spot where I have heard the biggest echo that I've ever heard in my life. And I've lived lots of places and seen lots of things, but this area, you can actually, I was. I was doing some daytime calling, which is acceptable, and uh, and just just kind of making noise out there to see if I could get anything to stir. And actually, we did. We we had a whole. There were a bunch of elk that Heard were bedded elk. down, and they all ran across a, a hill. Probably that's probably a half mile away from mm-hmm. where we were down this draw. I always use those opportunities to try to grab my phone and film that, or um, anytime we see any kind of anything out in the woods, because especially in Oregon, it's not like Montana uh, in the sense that I don't think that we see the same types of herds. Although in the area that Sarah's tribe is, there is a very, very large elk herd. And I've always heard that where the elk go, our friends go. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've always heard that. And so anytime they're around, I'm... They follow the game. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, we would did, did these echoes up there, mm-hmm. and you could hear this going throughout the entire forest. And one has to wonder, especially if you're up there at night. <laughs> <laughs> I always threaten to do that, but then I don't have anybody that wants to go out with me <laughs> out there at night. <laughs> and then it's also, you know, a good mile walk back in. So after you've let everything in the entire forest know you're there, then they can come and watch you walk out and. I don't know about that. So <laughs> it, it seems like a good idea in the daytime. I have a comment, though. You know, again, referring to Tom Sood when we had him on, he talked about, Tom, I don't know if you remember, he talked about um, a couple of Native fellows who were out. I don't remember what they were doing, but they hollered out, um, they said, Soka, Soka. And, and the creatures on the ridge above them echoed it back to them. Mm. I, I don't know if that what that actually means. Um, I, I believe that's in Chinook. Yeah, we have a couple different names. I'm not familiar with that one. Um, what about the words Soka Soka? That's what I was thinking. No. No, okay. I don't know. But also, you have lots of bands that are considered cousins that have maybe their own different dialects, but that you could still communicate with each other. Absolutely. So Chinook Wawa is the trade language of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and so it's, it's a conglomeration, and... Um, it's a language that was used up and down the Pacific Northwest. That's the language that I speak and my family speaks. And so there may be some words that originate in other tribal communities that we don't use within our our context, especially up on Vancouver Islands. Um, but we did have the trade language, which is what we use, um, that used a lot of different. It also includes some French and English, but I was just many of ask the that. yeah, that's that was a trade yes. language. Yes, and so a lot of the different tribal communities had words and and contributions to that language to make it a universally understood method of communication. I just thought it was interesting that they would would say that, they would holler that, and then they would get response back from the creatures. Sure. Well, and and one of the things uh, Sarah kind of addressed, but I I just wanted to share because I found this so fascinating. There's a, a lot of question about people wonder, are these you know are they are they apes are they people or what are they exactly and she had mentioned about the treaties and the story is that the once again that the treaties were put in place to keep them from basically taking their people but 
you don't make treaties with with apes. <laughs> you make treaties with with uh, some with intelligent creatures that are able to understand. And I just the idea of that to me is just fascinating. And that's where I think Forrest would have an opinion on that. <laughs> um, well. Um, I have a healthy respect for the indigenous people's uh, beliefs and would never um, uh, be the one to say that I um, disrespect that. My personal opinion, and like I always say, you know, we know what opinions are. Um, I, I believe that, <laughs> I believe that they're, I believe that they're a, an ape. Um, you know, apes, though, exhibit a high degree of intelligence. I mean, we've got Coco, the gorilla that actually spoke sign language, sign language. She was taught it. And she, you know, the, the, for a long time, people thought that we were the only one that had, uh, uh, the humans were the only ones that uh, could formulate abstract thinking. And Coco most definitely proved that incorrect because she actually related to her handlers and stuff stories about uh as a when she was a small infant that she remembered her mother and told stories about being in uh africa before she was uh uh captured so um i you know i still hold with the premise that they're 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 apes but um the level of intelligence is far superior, I think, than even your gorillas or your chimpanzees. But I have always talked that I think with their behavior um, that they are uh, more akin to the chimpanzees. And chimpanzees can be taught sign language, and they even have learned how to use computers. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we sometimes, we're learning things all the time about our fellow primates. And uh, a lot of people don't like to think of ourselves as being primates, but we are, we're, you know, I always say we're the naked ape. So, and um, I, I find, I, if I can interject something that I, I find it, um, I had to laugh when she said she jumped out of the hot tub when, when uh, the, whist <laughs> the whistling occurred. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, um, I think that there is a, a lot going on there with uh, the whistling. And I, I even told Tom about something that I had come across and I had never known about this. And it's in Lago Mera on the Canary Islands. And I don't know if you ever got a chance to, to look at that, Tom, but um, um, it's a small island off the uh, chain of the Canary Islands. And these people, I mean, everybody should go out there and look at this. These people communicate by whistling. They actually formulate entire sentences by the intonations of their whistling and i mean i was i had to watch it over and over and over again i was totally fascinated with it so i think that there is a lot more to the whistling of these primates uh excuse me of the bigfoot <laughs> than we <clears throat> so um but like i say that's my opinion and um, we know what opinions are. So. Well, I do want to say that I appreciate your sensitivity, and I don't think that the ideas that we're sharing are exclusive. Uh, I think it's important to note that Indigenous communities do believe that 
all animals have intelligence and that we have stories that reach back to the before time, the time before humans where animals could talk and then the time when humans came into existence and we had communication with animals in, in different aspects and different characters throughout history. And so the idea that these friends would be any different is is not an exclusive uh, or exclusionary concept. So whether they're apes or, or not, I, I can't say because that's not my area of expertise, but we believe that there's intelligence across the board. And I think that they can both, they can exist in both of those categorizations and still be true, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, good point. No, it does. And I totally agree with you. You know, and I want to comment on the, uh, we get a lot of reports. I mean, there's, it's just, and we're not the only ones. There's a lot of uh, people that have heard. And one of the guys, Will, we had uh, Gerald on, and his he was a police officer up in Washington, and his boss, the chief, where these things will actually mimic people perfectly. They do an excellent job of mimicking. And his uh, chief was out elk hunting one time with his son gerald wasn't with him at this time and they heard gerald's voice off in the woods calling them and i believe it was he's either calling them or calling the dog but we get a lot of people that have reported hearing human voices um, that were obviously you know mimicked and they would hear like for example they'd hear their own voice maybe calling a dog or a child or something like that. So there, there's another th interesting aspect to ponder. Sure. And I want to just play devil's advocate a little bit. And again, from an indigenous perspective that, you know, without the evidence that people want from a scientific perspective, we can attribute that to our friends or we can think about how maybe there are also other things out there that we don't know about or don't recognize scientifically and that we would believe that some of those things occur because of other entities or other beings also in the same realm of uh, not being yet discovered uh, by science so i would just throw that out there as something for consideration as well yeah we did talk about that a little bit that mm -hmm. there's bigfoot and there's other things <laughs> sure well, didn't they have in Hanabi, Oklahoma, uh, weren't they having the same incidences occurring that they were actually mimicking uh, the individuals there? Well, you know, I guess to preface that, you know, I, I was one of the people that interviewed uh, Mike from Hanobia and uh, a number of years back. And since then, I found out that some of the stuff was actually manufactured. So um, some of the story is real. Some of it wasn't. Uh, so I don't really know, you know, if that, that was accurate, but, um, I have heard it from other people though. Personally, I've never heard him, you know, speak. We, I've heard him chatter and, and one even made sounds like a chimp. It wasn't like a chimp, but it was the closest thing I could come to it. It was a, a more of a hooting and it was very agitated. The other one was kind of just chattering as there was no, uh, discernible words, but it was making a clear chattering noise. Well, what I had, you know, what I had told y'all that I heard on my property here sounded like uh, somebody was uh, off in the woods speaking uh, 
Chinese or something. Yeah. That's what it sounded like to me. It was uh, <laughs> almost an Oriental type I, language. I would say and that. Then, that's kind of yeah. that's kind of what the chattering resembled. Samurai chatter. We've we've heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, now they use that term with the Sierra sounds, and personally, I, I don't really, you know, I don't really think that's real myself. But the chattering certainly, you know, or, or like you said, that more of an Asian uh, language sound. Well, the, the unfortunate thing is that you've got a lot of stuff that's been said, and sometimes you wonder what's real and what's not. Exactly. So, you know, you have to kind of you have to kind of um, be. Uh, step back and take an overall okay what exactly is going on here <laughs> yeah I mean you have to be skeptical you really do yeah yeah well and I think everybody should go in uh, into it with a healthy skepticism absolutely don't just don't just fall, uh, swallow everything that's told to you you know hook line and sinker skeptics are my favorite people oh why not you know they really they really are <laughs> oh. I really enjoy talking to skeptics true skeptics not debunkers but skeptics yeah, exactly. Sarah, you shared an interesting story. Uh, when you're a teenager, you're driving along, and you've—I can't remember if you whistled or made a sound or said something out the door. And, you, and the comment you said was, "You're being teenagers, kind of, you know, just doing what they do." So, tell us that story. Yes. So I, I grew up on the Colville reservation, um, in high school. And of course we, we would go out joyriding at night on the dark roads. And, uh, as teenagers do, we were also looking for trouble and adventure ourselves and, and just pushing the limits. So one of those things was to test the stories and the things that we were taught as children. Uh, one of those things is the whistle that you're not supposed to do at night. And we were driving down a, a dark, back road on the reservation and somebody uh, encouraged me to roll down the window and we were going very slow roll down the window and, and ma make a whistle so i did and we were going slow enough you know that we could see everything moving really slowly past us you could hear the the crickets and the the uh, brush uh, sagebrush country high plat high desert plateau in eastern washington and uh, as I, I sent my whistle out and not more than three to five seconds later, I had an exact replica of the whistle come right back in the window. The window went right up and we sped off. So we never did that again. And that's why I jumped out of the hot tub that night <laughs> that must 25 have been a little, years later. <laughs> that must have been a little unsettling, huh? <laughs> what we do as teenagers. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I well, tested that theory, and it it came out true. So that's, that's why I encourage. That's a way to validate what you were told. That. <laughs> okay. But I, I love the description. Looking for trouble and adventure; those two go hand in hand. And, and yes. you found it. Yes. <laughs> and we found. It. Yeah. Be careful what you ask for. Indeed. Exactly. So. I'm curious about the, the reservation you said is Eastern Washington and Will and I have talked about Mount Adams, you know, on the Western side is, uh, it's, it's pretty lush and green on the Eastern side. I think that's, it's, it, well, isn't that still the beginning timbered. of the Ra Yakima? That's the Yakima. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And was this close to that area at all, Sarah? Or? Oh, no, you're No, the Calder right. Reservation is uh, about 90 minutes West of Spokane up North. Oh, okay, so way out there. Mm -hmm. The Grand Coulee Dam area. 
I'm trying to think. Is that near the little town of Bossburg by chance? Mm, no, um, <laughs> it would be like Elmer City, Grand Coulee, oh, okay. Coulee Dam. Okay. The the Grand Coulee Dam is right is the biggest tourist spot there. That would be the the kind of the pinpoint for people to recognize the area. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Bossburg is north of Colville, yeah. and so that is that is that reservation area. But I was further south. Towards the Cooley Dam area, lot lots of okay, sightings that, in that region. That oh yeah, look, that's right in the. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a that. We're looking at a map here, so I can familiarize myself. Yeah, so I just want to jump in. Yeah, Bossburg is like this the north uh, east corner of the reservation. Sarah, you disappointed me a little bit because I always felt that, you know, if I wanted to go to a place where I could camp and relax and <laughs> not have to worry about these things, it'd be Eastern Oregon, which is basically the same as Eastern Washington. Right. Sagebrush country. Tom, you're way off. And they're there. You got to remember Jason in Arizona. <laughs> got tons of stuff going on there. But I'm always looking for a place where they're not. You're going to have to go to Hawaii. <laughs> 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 we've but watch out for the mini who we we've had this discussion tom <laughs> we have yes we have and that's actually it, it produced some pretty good results in in the september area it did going to where they're not right but they were they were <laughs> it, it's a long story <laughs> so i guess the question is were they there because you were there no okay we 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 already knew they were there Oh, I see. <laughs> and they didn't like it's us the there. <laughs> it is the it is the fun part about it. Once once you have had an experience, and and you know you were she was saying that she had a, a an experience on her own property. What a how that that's the dream for me at least. Uh, when I spent that time the the last year out in Grand Ronde in a in a uh, old growth forested area where every night you have the opportunity for some kind of something to happen is pretty pretty all right wait danny did you say that was a dream to have them on your own property or a nightmare <laughs> yeah i guess i guess it goes either way depends who you're, which one of us you're talking to right right <laughs> danny you don't want that, <laughs> don't want that. <laughs> you, you don't want to be the happy meal <laughs> no but I well, will tell Forrest, you, you don't want to be worrying about being the happy right. <laughs> Forrest, have you had any experiences with them on your property? <laughs> <laughs> That's a rhetorical oh, question. Oh, <laughs> <Betsy>, Tom. <laughs> well, you know, I haven't had any lately, and 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 you know, um, <laughs> I have to laugh because. Uh, my daughter laughs at me when I say that, you know, well, mom, you're the anthropologist. I thought that you would be wishing that. And I'm like, yeah, well, uh, you know, maybe when I was 25, not so much now that I've hit my 60s. So, um, but, um, you know, <laughs> we all know the story about me waking up and having my air conditioner shaking and then looking out the window at this huge uh, uh, hulking black mass outside my window. And um, so, Yes, uh, I mean I could recount all the uh, occasions that uh, I've had things happen here, and, and that would, that, as well you know, that's another show. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but 
I, I, I will I will interject something though when uh, Danny and Sarah were talking about hearing the the branches breaking and such, um, and uh, Tom's reaction when he heard the branches breaking uh, would have been my reaction that would be time to leave because this is a very that is a very um, common uh, thing for chimpanzees and um, gorillas to do. Uh, of course, gorillas aren't near as aggressive, and most of their charges and stuff are all false charges, but uh, um, just trying to scare you away, but not so much for chimpanzees. Uh, you know my feelings about chimpanzees, Tom and Will. Um, anyway, um, that y'all going on and keep walking. Uh, you kept walking after you heard that. Uh, you're a braver soul than me, because once you hear that, that's usually when they're very unhappy with you. And they're trying to give you an indication that you need to be elsewhere other than where you're at. So I would have at that point in time uh, been the, the coward and turned around and, and went back down the hill. So, um, you know, but that's just me. <laughs> well, we did. Uh, we did move on. I, I guess it wasn't clear when we told our story. We were coming down a, a really a short road and we ended up going to a different space uh, to finish our hike. So yes, well, we would not, okay. we definitely did not stick around to, to make any more trouble. <laughs> well, and, and as much as maybe I would have, I don't want her to ever, I would never want my uh, hobby to change uh, the way that she views being out in the woods. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm, want to protect her. I don't want her to feel scared or nervous or any of those things. And, and I know that at that moment I was like, because I, all I could think about is what kind of arm strength does it take to break a branch like that? I, I mean, really? So uh, I, I think that, yeah, we, we, we definitely, we moved on, moved on. And, <laughs> and I think it's more just the fact that she's like, see, I told you, and so you know it, it reminds me of a friend of mine from Klamath, the Klamath Reservation. He's quite a character, and the first time I found that where they would snap trees that were you know three plus inches thick, like they were twigs, uh, I showed him pictures, and he kind of chuckled. And he says, "Oh, you finally found that." I said, "What do you mean? I finally found that?" He said, "Yeah, that's a territorial marking." He says, "Or in the case of the ones we found, they were in a line." He said, "That's the big guy telling the rest of them where we're going to feed next." And I said, oh, it would have been nice knowing that a little sooner. And he says, well, there's no fun in that. You need to find out for yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and, you know, it's fascinating. On that way out to the Oregon coast through the Grand Ronde tribe, there's a, there's a big casino out there. So there's, there are people that live all the way across. And there have been sightings all across that interstate as long as it's been there. Oh, that whole region, very active. That's the whole, and, and people live – they are it always fascinates me to think about how close they are and how they seemingly are able to move in and out of rural tight neighborhoods and and get right up to your house and able to shake an air conditioner i mean that is mm -hmm. just uh and then also able to slip away in and have three quarters of the population not even believe that it's even a possibility or, or uh, that is just, it's something that's, so when we were sitting in her backyard out there at night, it just stands the reason that yes, they, I could give them a reason to want to come up and, and see me. I don't know if, if it works that way, 
but um, why not? What what I always felt like. What do I have to lose until I found out that? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, what do you have to lose? You know, they may they may show up and they may not leave when you want them to. Well, you know, and and they can get very close to you without you knowing it. I had one right. two feet behind me when I was a teenager and didn't know it. Uh, we told the story about the Clark Ranch a number of times, but, you know, we were out in an area where we heard there was a lot of screaming going on. The family there said, sure, you can go out there. We're not going. Uh, we hiked out there and set up our tent, had a fire going. One of the guys wanted to go to bed, so we said, oh, you know, go in the tent. We're going to sit up and listen. And we heard the rustling around and going on, and we're joking about him in there. And pretty soon he about tears the tent down coming out. And he said, it isn't very funny, you guys messing with me. So we... You know, he said that he thought one of us grabbed him and tried pulling him out of the tent. And I said, well, you know, great idea, but we didn't think of it. If there, if this really happened, you know, there has to be proof because the ground was pretty soft back there. And we took a flashlight, and sure enough, there were 18-inch footprints leading from the tent going back into the woods. And this thing had come and knelt down right behind me and was reaching under the end of the, the edge of the tent and was apparently rummaging through our stuff and grabbed a hold of him and uh, let go when it realized it was a live body that it had but i never heard anything and it was that close well i can walk in your house with you not even knowing it so yes uh, yes you yes. know that from experience i know that from experience i still bear the scar on my forehead from that little experience so yeah mm-hmm. and why i'm still here i don't know <laughs> well guess they just decided you weren't what they wanted at the moment i didn't look too tasty that not night. too tasty <laughs> right <laughs> it was just mad that you didn't leave the can opener out i know <laughs> oh heavens to betsy <laughs> you know that must have been why they came around the clark ranch because we we cooked beans that's what we had for our dinner that evening <laughs> we didn't share <laughs> Oh. Well, I'm, I'm my scraps. I take way out in the pasture now. I don't. Uh, I and every every morning they're gone. So I mean, but I, I don't. Uh, 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 I don't know. It could very well be raccoons and possums that are getting it. But uh, uh, like I say, I haven't in the last couple of months had any uh, anything going on here. But then this this time of the year is when uh, it, it gets quiet. So right. and then the fall it'll smooth up again. We talked to a guy last night. Uh, from Maine, who we'll have on next week's show. But, um, you know, he bought property, and, and apparently it was very unusual. Of course, you'll folks, you'll get to hear that when you listen to the episode about the deal he got on the property, and unknowingly the creatures were there. Um, so he had an experience that lasted about a month and a half, then he disappeared. And that was August, September. So I said, well, you know, keep your eyes open this coming August and September because they're cyclic and in a lot of places they'll come back most likely. Well, and we've had so many fires here in Oregon, vast areas. And one has to wonder how that, how that will affect, you know, they take advantage of those a lot of times. I mean, they're familiar with fire. They've been around them forever. Uh, and I'll give you an example uh, I had a friend who was a, a Cal Fire captain here in California. He's retired now, but uh, he messaged me when uh, there was a, a pretty large fire going just north of here. And he said that he and another one of the captains were 
um, they were having a discussion one evening, and it was just kind of behind uh, the scenes where they were doing food drops and things like that, some other maintenance kinds of things going on. And they watched one of these things sneak up on their food drop and apparently grabbed what it wanted and, and left. Um, another time, again, I was at the, uh, the Klamath Reservation in Southern Oregon, and, and uh, Gerald Skelton, who was the head of the cultural committee at the time, was telling me that um, there was a, a native fire crew working this fire and one of the creatures came, they were sweeping the line, I guess, for hot spots. And one of the creatures come running out of the fire and its hair smoldering and it fell down amongst these, these guys who were, you know, looking for hot spots. Of course, they were a little shook up and, and it left handprints that got up and ran off. And, uh, they, somebody cast the prints and they were on display for many years and then they, the, the prints vanished. But, um, others have seen them, you know, take advantage of the wildlife, you know, frantically running from the from the fire to grab an easy meal so I, I don't think they're too shook up by it and one of the effects of fires is you'll note that the next year there's a lot of green vegetation growing from a fire and that attracts all the animals that eat the plants so it attracts them too because they're eating the animals that eat the plants mm-hmm fascinating ecosystem it's it's very interesting uh tom had to step away for a moment but we're kind of running no, no, Tom's oh here. there he is we're, we're running a little short yeah. on time tom i don't know if you wanted to uh have anything else to ask no but i did want to thank danny and sarah for coming on the show and, and i always thank forrest uh, we love your input and danny and sarah um don't be strangers stay in touch with us absolutely yeah, if you get any new contacts or if you have questions or anything like that, uh, never hesitate to reach out to us. You got our uh, email address. So, again, I just want to extend a big hearty thank you from Creek Devil to you guys. Thanks a bunch. And, and if you'd like, you know, contact me and I can send you some sign to watch for also. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. We had a really, really fun time. We, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. You as well, Forrest. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. In Bigfoot history, Sister Lakes, Michigan, June 1964. True, June 1966 and other publications report a dozen people seeing a 9-foot, 500-pound thing that cries like a baby and makes the earth tremble when it walks. It looks like an ape and its eyes shone in the dark. Several people said they'd seen such a creature earlier on occasion. Police found human-like footprints six inches wide across the ball and four inches across the heel. All sightings were at night except one by girls aged 12 and 13 who were frightened on a wooded road by something like a bear on its hind legs except for the face. <laughs> back from the break so tom what do we got for questions i guess we have quite a bit don't we yeah we got a handful of questions here um susanna wants to know she said i've heard people uh doing this many times and i was wondering what's the best way to stop the 
gifting Sasquatch process. Some say if you stop doing it, bad things are going to happen, like sort of like uh, they're vindictive, you know, killing livestock and stuff. So what would you tell people who would like to stop and be safer after all? Is there a way that to tell these apes the game's over in a polite fashion? Well, I don't know if there is any polite fashion. The issue is where it's being done. If you're feeding these things close to your home, you got problems. Then you need to do things like, you know, cut the brush back at least 50 feet away from your house. You have an open area, uh, motion sensor lights, things like that. Um, and if it keeps escalating, we have some other things, then you want to contact us so for more information. But if it's out in the woods somewhere, um, stop doing it and quit going back to that spot. I, I, I would think anyway. What are your what's your uh, thoughts, Forrest? Well, I, I totally agree with you. First off, you should have never started it in the first place. But uh, um, you know, just stop. And uh, you know, I've actually followed uh, your suggestions on cutting back stuff from away from my house and clearing everything out. So, and putting lights on uh, every corner of the house. So. Uh, I think that is the right thing to do, and first off, people shouldn't even start it and get get the situation, uh, you know, started. So, uh, but if it is out in the woods, just stay away from there, and just like you said, don't do it anymore. Yep, cold turkey. Yep. And what do you what what do you recommend? <laughs> I guess if if they are doing it at their house. Like you said, clear the brush back and... Well, motion sensor lights, I would... Um, and change up your routine. If you have a regular routine you do every day, they're watching that. They see what you're doing. And they take advantage of the times they can come in there when they're not being seen. So you want to change up a routine. Vehicular traffic at unexpected times of the day. Things like that will upset their um, perception of what's going on especially if they see numerous people coming in and out. A good point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Brett wants to know, he says, hey, I've been listening to Bigfoot podcasts of our, yours and ours and others, but I haven't heard anyone talk about the issue of no bodies yet. It seems improbable that no one or that none have been killed by humans. I've watched great vids and dog hog hunts and all that sort of thing. It just doesn't seem possible possible to me that motivated hunters haven't taken some. So what's your take on that? Well, number one, you should take a look at John Green's old books because he lists quite a few occasions where bodies were found. Um, and secondly, with hunters, you know, these things aren't stupid animals. They know, they know where people are all the time in their areas. You know, if you're out in their backyard, they're going to know you're there. And they're not just going to be an easy target for hunters. And hunters have shot at them. Uh, I've interviewed hunters. One guy in particular, in fact, told me that uh, he saw this thing. It was across a, a draw from him on this other road. And uh, he shot it. He, he pretty sure he hit it in the right shoulder. And it didn't seem to phase it a whole bunch. It just kept going where it was going and disappeared. So... <coughs> You know, it's, these things have been shot at. I, I've talked to people that have, uh, one guy hit one with his Jeep. It was foggy, hit it, hit his Jeep, wrecked the Jeep. It wasn't like Harry and the Hendersons where it knocked down and uh, was 
out unconscious, the thing just got up and ran off. And uh, he had to repair the Jeep himself because what do you tell the insurance company? <laughs> right. <laughs> so these these Bears. things have occurred. It's not like they haven't. You know, you just need to do a little research and, and look around and you'll find these stories. You know, I, I've always found it fascinating, though, that people will shoot these things at close range or at a distance, you know, with like 30 out 6, 30 30, I can understand. You, know, you get 30 30, you might have a tough time even with some elk, but a 30 out 6 center of mass. And maybe they squawk, but they just keep going. But you have to look at the mass. You're talking about something the width of a two by uh, sheet of plywood, you know. So, you know, and it's it's chest. The one I saw, the first one, the chest from the front to the back was probably three feet thick. I mean, it was enormous. So I thought to myself at the time, even if I had my, I used to hunt with a 300 Savage. I thought if I'd had my hunting rifle, I sure as hell wouldn't have taken a shot at at something that big because the round simply wasn't big enough. Yeah, I mean, unless somebody's well, going to attack me. And then we, I think we've talked about before that the the muscle density on uh, your great apes, such as gorillas and chimpanzees, is denser than it is on uh, us. Uh, Correct, and that's what I was told about these creatures the weak, too. We're the weakest of the great apes. Yeah, I was told that about these creatures too from my sources. Yeah. That it was much higher. Yeah, I, that makes sense. So, you know, that's going to affect what a bullet will do, you know, as opposed to, say, a deer or an elk or some other animal. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Jesse wants to know, he says, I wonder, since these creatures seem to be more human than animal, if they can suffer from the same mental illnesses as a person that, that makes them crazy, or seeing hunters with guns and they get mad, Maybe they were shot before. This really dovetails into our previous discussion. Maybe there's a reason for their aggressive behavior and not just because they want to hurt us. So is that a possibility? I would think so. I, I defer to Forrest on that. I mean... Well, um, much to my dismay, uh, University of Washington has done a lot of studies with macaques. You know, that's my favorite monkey rhesus macaques and uh, they unfortunately are used way too much in lab work um and they have actually done studies and why they have to keep doing them over and over and over you think one study would be sufficient um but they force isolationism on these uh, uh baby macaques and raise them up into adulthood to see how the effects of being without a mother or uh without proper socialization uh has on their um, psyche and you know what it's never a good thing and um, so they primates monkeys even the lower order primates react much in the same way as humans do <clears throat> when there is a deprivation of uh, uh, social interaction and uh, they learn very quickly to recognize uh, the dangers of humans as well. Uh, the chimpanzees in the Congo, uh, where they're having all this tribal warfare, uh, and they were using and hunting, actually the humans were hunting the chimpanzees as bushmeat. Uh, you know, again, I can't imagine why you would kill something that <laughs> shares, that's practically like eating your cousin, but anyway, 
uh, they would hunt these chimpanzees uh, for bushmeat. And uh, the chimpanzees very quickly learned that, you know what, we're not going out during the day anymore. We're going to change our behavior so that we'll, they go and feed at night when the humans can't hunt them. They recognize uh, that uh, they may not know the complete and total mechanism of a gun and how it works, but they know that it brings death and destruction. And uh, I think that, uh, again, that Bigfoot's going to react the exact same way. Uh, they're going to hide, and uh, they're not going to want anything to do with a human that's wandering around with a, a rifle. You know, I would say even before rifles were invented, um, you know, there was friction long before that with these, you know, between humans and these creatures as, uh, you know, evidence to Native Americans and other historical references. But um, that's that's a good point. Makes kind of makes me think, um, you know, since the Sasquatch today is primarily active, you know, in either plus or minus an hour of sunset and the same with sunrise during those time periods and at night, if that wasn't an adaptation because of human activity? Well, I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, Bigfoot is like most primates. It's reactive to nature and the, its surroundings. Uh, it, it, uh, what a prime example is, is um, having, been, having lived uh, 17 years in Alaska, uh, hunters were uh, very often uh, confronted with uh, grizzlies or black bears showing up after they had uh, shot something. It doesn't take a, uh, an animal. I mean, often, too often, I think humans think that we're so superior in intelligence that, uh, uh, that even uh, lower forms of animals recognize, uh, oh, I hear a gunshot. Gunshot produces uh, dead deer, dead elk, uh, dead moose, uh, dinner bell. And I think the Sasquatch is exactly the same way, you know. And there's, uh, and there's even stories know. in, yeah, in, in Green's books there are stories where they talk about that. These guys out hunting, they shoot a deer, and then immediately <laughs> afterwards a Sasquatch steps out of the woods, grabs the deer, and takes off with it to the amazement of the hunters. Yeah, and I'm not going to argue with them. <laughs> no, and I've interviewed people that have actually had that happen. Yeah, so, I, yeah personally, I, I, I personally wouldn't uh, argue with them. I'd say, hey, no. It's all help. yours. <laughs> Glad to have helped out. Thanks a lot. Feeding <laughs> uh, a meaty Bigfoot family. <laughs> Just remember well, that, that was... when I come in the woods again. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, that was Buddy. Buddy, buddy fight. fight. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Danny. Those... Oh, let me let me let me address that time yeah. before we go. Um, for those who haven't heard the story, um, I met. Oh, this is back in two, 1992. I met this guy who was uh, former Hell's Angel member and um, guitar player for Johnny Mathis, and he's quite a guy. And he told me the story about poaching deer one year. And I can't remember what year it was. Late 70s, I think. In southern Washington, and they shot this deer. Him and this other guy had his Jeep up there, and they shot this deer in a switchback above the road they were on. So when they drove up to retrieve the dead deer, the deer carcass was gone. So they found the blood trail, and they followed it for a ways. Then they come across this creature dragging the deer off by its neck, and they, he says, well, we decided to let the creature have the deer. <laughs> no. Very man magnanimous. <laughs> Self-preservation. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm sorry. I had, had to 
mention it because sometimes oh, no, no, you know that, we that, talk that, about things listeners may new listeners may not have heard. Yeah, and that's a good story. I like that one. Um, okay, so Danny from the Southern Sierra. Hello, Danny. Uh, we get a lot of great questions from you. Um, and he says, uh, pardon me if you've answered this question and I missed it, so no problem there. A real dry year um, in his location. High country water is running out fast. He says, say you're a Bigfoot and he thinks I'm one, so all right, I'll take it. Uh, to get to the river, do you take the ridge line down or do you take one uh, of the deep dry side drainages? My guess is the latter ridges tend to be much more sparse in trees. Um, Will, what are your thoughts? Well, that's what I that's what I learned <clears throat> the hard way, you know, traversing those areas cross country. Um, typically the draws, that's where the water, more of the water is. So there's more vegetation there, especially devil's clubs and things like that. Usually very difficult going. And if you're going to a water source, it might be, you know, especially the dry draws might be number one, very difficult to get through and take you longer to get to a water source. Whereas if you're on a ridge top, it is more sparsely populated with trees and things. You have a better field of vision and and it's a more of a direct line a lot of times to a water source you know kind of a follow-up on that uh and we've talked about this a little bit that a lot of times they won't necessarily be at the very top of the ridge where they can be spotted but just slightly down and i believe that's the uh, military crest yeah a lot of times too they're in those places because they're above uh, the airflow where deer can smell them. Oh, good point. Yeah, so you would definitely not want to be on the very top of the ridge because you're just going to spread your scent in all directions. Right. Um, okay, we got another good question here, and he's got a couple of them here. Okay, have some related Bigfoot questions. What is the three-toed creature I've heard mentioned in some of our Creek Devil episodes. It's described as especially dangerous, and the implication is that it's not a Bigfoot. Right. I was I was given information about that. Um, I, I can't say what exactly it is because I don't know, but uh, it's not, not Bigfoot-related at all. It's something else. Is it something you want to go up and shake hands with? No. 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 <laughs> The contact that I had said that they they only had one survivor of an account uh, where the witness saw the creature, uh, and it was more amphibian-like. It wasn't anything like, you know, what we come to know a Bigfoot to be. Is that the one the uh, Mr. Black said, think of the creature from the Black Lagoon? Right, right. <clears throat> Well, do you remember the conversation? It was a very amicable conversation with Lee. Um, this was a number of years ago where he had a he had footprints right outside of his window that were three-toed. And he was saying, see, this proves that there's some three-toed Bigfoot. <laughs> and you, do you remember that? It was, it was he, an he animated assumed. conversation. He assumed. And it's just like when, when he and I talked about his encounter, his close encounter with one of these creatures. And he couldn't reconcile uh, being just about face-to-face -face with the creature. Then moments later, it was 100 yards up this trail. And I said, well, because you had more than one there. 
and and it just hadn't dawned on him that it was there were multiple creatures there. He assumed it was the same one, and it wasn't. Uh, same well, with this case. That's where you get these people coming up with these paranormal situations where, oh, it just disappeared right in front of my eyes, then reappeared over here. Well, no, you're just dealing with multiples. Absolutely. Yeah, very correct. And yeah, I, I don't think you, you probably don't want me to tell you what I think the, the three-toed thing is, too. So. Oh, no, we do, too. Come on. <laughs> well, I don't want people thinking I'm a total crackpot, but uh, I, I think it may be alien in nature. And uh, I think there's a lot of things out there, including giants and such, that, uh, you know what, we just don't know a whole lot about. Well, you know, I, I don't know for sure myself either. It's not, I, I deal with just one crazy subject at a time. So, but that's what <laughs> I was told also, that they weren't from here, the three toad yeah. ones. All right, and this is right along those lines, so we're, we're on the same page here. Um, this guy wants to know, he says, so are there other unknown large animals in North American forests that have evaded detection besides the Bigfoot? That is, you believe there are credible evidence of existence, and can, can, you, can, can we confirm that there are other such creatures? And uh, if you can't say... What? I'm not sure where he's asking there, but I'll, I'll just say it's possible. Yeah, and he says if it's true, if if so, uh, should we just stay out of the deep forest? That's probably a good idea. Yeah, I'd say that's your call. Um, I love, or I <laughs> used to love, the deep forest. I still love it. I just have a greater awareness of what the hazard potential hazards could be. Right, right. Well, I don't know if you want me to tell the story that I think I told y'all once before, but uh, my husband had, uh, my husband used to do a lot of hunting before he died in Alaska, and that uh, he had been told the story. And of course, this makes it hearsay when stand up in court, but uh, had my husband had no reason to lie about it, um, that, that he had uh, talked to a hunter who was a well-known uh, big game hunter that went into the wrangles all the time because up there you get absolutely world-renowned um, uh, sheep and I mean they're just uh, a humongous and uh, bear and all that and that he was scoping out uh, the ridges looking for sheep and he was well up above the uh, Chamberline himself and uh, of course you have to understand the type of binoculars that they use they're not like what you go down to Walmart and buy these things are two and three and four thousand dollar binoculars that these guys use that they can see <laughs> and you know uh, ungodly uh, links and distances and he actually watched a creature go and I say creature uh, it appeared to be a man. It was redheaded, and it had tusks. And it went up the hill on the opposite side, this ridge that he was on, went up another mountainside, and this thing <laughs> appeared to be human, but it had tusks, and it was redheaded. And uh, he, at that point in time, decided that it was um, time to leave, that um, I'll, I'll tell but you. There were, there were big game sheep up there enough that was going to keep him around to run into that. 
So I saw one of my family members. Tom, Tom and I have a friend that we talked to in Alaska, and he talked to a bush pilot up there. And this was, I don't know, last year, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah. Yep. Who actually was flying, I don't remember the area, but he was flying up there, I believe it was north of Anchorage, and actually saw one of these things. And, and we're talking about something that's around 20 feet tall, but that exact yeah. description. And he buzzed it, I think, about three times. And the guy was so shook up, and he'd been a bush pilot for many years. He sold his plane and left Alaska. Wouldn't talk about yep. it to anybody. Talked about it to our friend, but that was it. Well, yeah, well do that you remember that he told KC that this thing was about 20 feet tall or maybe taller? Yeah. He, uh, remember, Will, you mentioned that you talked to one of the Mr. Blacks about that. Yes. You and omitted he it. the tusks part. Yeah. And then what was the first question he asked? Did it have tusks? Yes. So we don't know what that is, folks. But uh, Are we going to go looking for those next or no. just leave them? Oh, hell no. <laughs> I, will, I will interject something that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. Um, historically, that is a correct um, situation. And uh, Lovelock Caves in Nevada. Uh, and I, I know you know what I'm talking about, uh, Will. Yeah. Uh, where they, the Paiute Indians actually killed a um, group of <clears throat> giants that lived there that were um, that usually stood anywhere from 11 to 15 feet tall. They were redheaded, and um, they uh, smoked them, uh, suffocated them in this uh, cave in uh, yeah, uh, Nevada. Yeah, at the mouth of it. Yes. And that is historically correct because the rancher that ended up owning the, the property used that cave to excavate guana for fertilizer, and they found these bones of these giants, and they are at the University of uh, Nevada, and uh, <clears throat> they, in fact, ancient aliens even showed some of the skulls and they retained some of the red hair on them, but mm-hmm. the Paiutes uh, that were being attacked and cannibalized by these things, and they were human. I mean, they weren't Bigfoot. They didn't describe them as, uh, you know, hairy creatures. They were uh, tall, <clears throat> fair-skinned, and they had uh, red hair. And what do you so, think about the tusks, though? I mean, that's kind of an interesting detail. <clears throat> well, these skulls never exhibited tusks. But, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I don't know. You got me on that one. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a strange canines, one, that's for sure. Yeah, elongated canines is, uh, you know, um, I can see that. In primates. But, uh, you know, humans, it's not so common unless you're David Bowie. But uh, <laughs> 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 he, he even got his teeth worked on. But, uh, you know, it does occur with humans. I mean, sometimes they do have. Some people do have longer pronounced canines. So, yeah, kind of a uh, recessive gene, right? <laughs> I'm sorry? Yeah, kind of a recessive gene thing. Yeah, I would I would think that it probably is, but uh, and that's something that's exhibited very often. But, uh, um, you know, and I mean, everybody's canines do have a, a, a pronounced point on them, so they're by right. Yeah. Okay, next question, Tom. Okay. I think we've done so, that enough. <laughs> yeah. We killed that one. <laughs> uh, I, uh, but that's one of my favorite subjects. I, I like it's, that one. Yeah, yeah. As long as you don't run into one, right? Right, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's that one of the ones that we're going to shelf for a very long time. And for those are our, supposed to be 
primarily up north, like Alaska, northern Canada, though not not so much in the lower forty-eight here. Right. We hope. Okay. Uh, this person says hi. Uh, thanks for the great show every week. So thank you for for the kudos. Uh, this person has four questions. When people are walking in the woods, how do you think Bigfoot generally behave if humans are detected coming? Do you think they move away? Do they follow in stealth mode or move in and stay very still? Do people walk past hidden Bigfoots mere feet away without noticing? Hmm, good well, question. I can answer that. <laughs> yes. Well, typically they're going to be they're going to be there quietly and watch. Uh, and I have done it. I walked past my first encounter, obviously walked right past the smaller one and encountered the big one. Then the smaller one came around after I shot my rifle in the air. And I guess even at the Clark Ranch, like we mentioned in the first episode, uh, the creature came up right behind me where I was kneeling down. I never heard it. And it was getting, trying to get stuff out of the tent. Well, and... The, uh, the first sighting that I had was, or the first time I had a sighting, I should say, August of 20, I was in an area that I knew deep down in my heart, these things are nowhere around here. Mm -hmm. And we went out, and the two guys I was out there with, uh, they said, well, let's go check out that field first. We'll vet that, and then we'll, we'll move on, because I'd proposed another area to, to check it out. And we spent couple hours out there quite a bit of time out there and as we were leaving that's when i smelled it they smelled it and it all went it, it all got started from there so uh, we've been there the whole time under observation yeah i mean you know of course they can leave without you know you ever knowing that they're gone but sure. i think typically they're gonna keep an eye on you to see what you're doing see how many are there etc Absolutely. What do you think, Forrest? Well, I think you're correct on all the above, uh, and I think they do a variety of things. And, I mean, I, I found out that I had two of them that had been sitting under that, uh, if you remember, we found the tracks and such up above on a, a slight hillock area, um, that they'd been sitting under a cedar tree that had low-hanging boughs. And, um, I mean, the cedars up here get so thick that you can look into, and it's just like a black nothing and they'd been sitting up there and watching me and uh, I, I suppose I was their uh, daily entertainment uh, and uh, you know I never knew they were there they were just quietly sitting there and they weren't hurting anything so I guess it didn't really bother me any well I guess right. it's one of the things what you don't know won't hurt you but sometimes it will uh, but I mean if you're wandering through the woods uh I can see them quietly watching you if they feel like you're, uh, and the other hand, if they feel like you're progressing way too far into their territory, then that's when the, 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 uh, the breaking branches and, you know, other things start occurring. So, um, you know, I think, I think basically they don't really, they would just assume you would go away and leave them alone, but, uh, you know. You know, even individuals that, that differ on that. Right. Even the Patterson event, you know, after after Patterson and Gillen, you know, encountered the creature and filmed it, I think a lot of people assume it just walked away and was never, there was no more information, but that's incorrect because Bob Titmus went there 10 days after the filming, 
followed the line of tracks, and found where the creature had uh, hidden itself in some brush and apparently had watched the two men for quite some time afterward. Yeah, and that's that's very typical primate behavior. Yeah. Well, and Forrest, you had mentioned something that I found pretty interesting a while back, that chimps will sometimes remain motionless and people will walk right by them and oh, they yeah. have a clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, gorillas, too. And, of course, uh, uh, you know, you get into a tropical area and something is, goes back to, like, what I was saying about the cedars here being so dark and, and dense, you can't see anything in there. And if they're just sitting there motionless, I mean, they just look like a shadow, you know? It's a natural camouflage. And, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and they can, they're so quiet, too, is what is amazing to me, that they can just, you know, there's been a lot of researchers that had them, you know, just walk up on, on them behind behind them, and that they were never even aware that they had done that until they turn around and it's like, hello. Oh. All right, so here's another question, and this, by the way, is from Teresa in Ontario. She says, I know hunters who spend weeks every year in the forest, and they've never seen anything unusual. What would you say most people who've spent a lot of time in the bush will have unknowingly been watched, possibly followed by these creatures. Such ability to hide and evade is truly disturbing. Most hunters can, with patience, find any other animal in the forest. What's going on? Can you mainly only catch them on the move at night? Well, when you see them, they're letting you see them, you know, for whatever it is they're doing for whatever reason. It's not accidental. You know, again, they're not just some stupid animal wandering around, blundering through the forest. That's not how they operate. You're talking about an apex predator, so they are very aware of what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. I, I and we hear that all the time. Well, I want to mention something. Yeah, I want to mention something real quick, too, kind of back up a little bit on the previous question. We were talking about, you know, chimps doing, you know, standing still. Uh, our friend in Alaska again mentioned about the billy ape and said that he was actually in that part of the world. Uh, I can't remember what time period, late 80s, I think, but they were told by the locals, natives, that if they that the billy apes would walk right up to them and stare at them because they had apparently no fear of humans. Uh, and they didn't bother them. They sort of ignored them. They said just, you know, if they do that, just, you know, pretend they're not there and, and walk around them. And, and apparently they had to do that. So I thought that was very interesting. Well, the oh, last thing you need to do is make eye contact with them as well. And, and of course, one of the uh, uh, lady that actually did a lot of research on Billy Apes, that she actually had male walk up right behind her, and uh, th- there was an imperceptible noise, and she actually turned around, and there it was. So, I mean, it, if they want you to see them, you'll see them. And, uh, and of course, the Billy Ape has no fear of anything. That's why they're called the uh, leopard killers and lion right, killers. right. And I'm assuming these creatures are the same way. They don't really have any fear of humans, but they're very wary. I mean, they're, they're of course, I'm sure self-preservation is high on their list. So they know humans are dangerous and are going to be wary. But, uh, you know, if you see them, they probably are allowing that for whatever reason, whatever it is they're doing. You know, and I just want to comment again that, um, you know, we, we hear that a lot. You know, you hear loggers and people that, you know, forestry workers and that sort of thing. Well, gosh, I've been in the woods my whole life and I've never seen one of these things. 
Well, I think about the loggers. You know, their focus on their job, they're doing what they're doing, and these things are excellent at remaining hidden. Correct. And I think, yes, they have seen you. They do watch you. Oh, sure. They, they want to. So simply because you have, there's a lot of things that I haven't seen. I've never seen a murder take place, for example. Do I believe they happened? I do. I think there's plenty of evidence for that. So well, you, you remember to me telling about the uh, the helicopter logging crew in Skamania County. My friend Carlo and I got called about a, an incident with this crew, and it wasn't a big crew. I think you know, maybe half a dozen guys, and they were logging with a helicopter. And you know, none of them believed in this subject. You know, same reason because they'd been out there their whole lives logging and never seen anything. Well, this particular day, the pilot was hoisting a log up from a location and radioed down to the guys that this creature was sneaking up on their lunches they placed on this big boulder not too far away. Uh, made a believer out of them. And, of course, when we went there, we found a line of 18-inch footprints in the, in the mud. So uh, there, in fact, had been one there. Yeah, and Danny, who we just had on, uh, his uh, his friend, his band member, was, who minored in anthropology and majored in geology, knew that they don't exist for, you know, all this <laughs> Typical reasons until he saw one. So, okay, moving on. Do Will, do you think the reports of stolen children, and actually this is uh, for Forrest as well, do you think the reports of stolen children occur in relation to a baby hunger type of craving of female Bigfoot who have recently lost a baby Bigfoot? The pattern is known to occur with human females stealing babies at times so i wonder if this is the most probable explanation or is it a more predatory one i i think it's more predatory that's my opinion though yeah Forrest, what are your thoughts okay uh i think we've actually kind of uh broached the subject before kidnapping amongst primates <laughs> ourselves included unfortunately um occurs all the time. Um, Macaques are famous for it. Chimpanzees are famous for it. Um, so are gorillas. Um, <clears throat> it oftentimes occurs, occurs for different reasons. You will have juvenile females that will grab an infant from a mother and uh, run around with it. And most generally, um, it sometimes has to do with the hierarchy within the troop. Um, you know, uh, a juvenile that comes from a high-ranking female will go do it to a lower-ranking female because she knows that that female is not going to necessarily put up a fight. What will usually happen is you'll see the, the, the mother of the infant will follow, uh, follow around closely, and then when she gets the opportunity, she'll uh, snatch that infant back. Sometimes there's fights that incur, and sometimes the infants, unfortunately, get injured or even killed in the the um, little disturbances. But it occurs all the time. If the male does it, uh, it's not necessarily a good thing because uh, very often times it results in a predatory type nature. They will kill them. In baboon society, they will eat the infants and devour the infants. Uh, ch chimpanzees <clears throat> uh, will do the same thing, and I think I related an incident where, uh, you know, most of your chimpanzee females will go off into the uh, uh, forest to 
uh, deliver their babies when it's time and then come back uh, in a couple of days with the infant to the troop. They actually had a young um, female, um, a researcher related that uh, was not, uh, I guess, familiar with uh, <laughs> uh, the social uh, patterns. And she actually delivered her infant within view of the uh, troop. And immediately, as soon as that baby popped out, a male came along and snatched it, killed it, and then went off and in view of the mother and everything and ate that baby. And, and as horrible as that sound, sounds, that happens all the time. And so I can see, and I think I had said this once before, that I see this as being a behavior pattern that uh, Bigfoot probably uh, fine. And if you remember the incident with the little boy in uh, North Carolina, and there's some even other historical accounts where when you question the children, he was found alive and he was stuck in a, in brambles, like uh, something had put him there so that he couldn't get out. And uh, he couldn't, and he was calling, and that's how they found him. And he related that he'd been taken care of by a bear. Well, you know, I... Like I said, I lived in Alaska for 17 years, and I know, Will, you know this, and Tom, too, as well. Bears don't take care of children. Bears no. will eat, <laughs> gonna eat them. <laughs> uh, and, and they're not going to take them off for two or three days and, and nurture them and then put them in brambles uh, maybe to save for dinner later. No, that's not going to happen. So, so you, so you uh, think, think that would happen with the, <laughs> You think that would happen interspecies-wise this way? Uh, yes, I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, hell, they have uh, they have incidences in Africa of chimpanzees actually, and even macaques of st- in India. It occurs. They uh, come in and they will snatch infants right out of their beds and uh, and take them and kidnap them. And uh, it always ends in a disastrous results. So, um, you know, yes, it happens all the time. Oh, very tragic. Yes, okay, last question from Teresa, and I think this will be the last one for this show, so we'll have some more for next time. Uh, no, I mean, we got a little, a little more time. Okay. Um, Will, are there any known hot spots in Ontario, Canada for Bigfoot? And then Teresa says, besides the Algonquin Park that I've heard about before. Yeah, there are. I, I can't think off the top of my head names, but I'd have to look at a map to uh, to pinpoint them. But there are. And, and Canada just really seems like a place where you know has such a low uh, human population density that uh, these things could be all over the place. And you know, in order to have a sighting, you need two things: you need the sighter and the sighty. So right. Yeah, I think. I think. There's probably a higher population of the creatures there, and like you said, the lower human population, so it's a natural. Okay, here's another question. In any of your research into older accounts, have you ever come across old trappers actually trapping a Sasquatch? I know a trap wouldn't hold them for long, but it would be interesting to know if they ever caught one. And then two, yeah, I... We haven't heard anything like that, so... Now, I do wonder, though, 
if they have maybe accidentally got their feet caught in traps, causing you know severe injuries and deformations? I think they would have. I wonder. I'll just speculate. I wonder if they have the intelligence to know how to open up the trap, and I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, if they're watching the trapper, but if they're if they're unaware, you know, especially you know way back, you know, late eighteen hundreds when they were trapping a lot. Um, and first encountered things like that. That would have been a very unpleasant surprise. Yes, absolutely. Especially juveniles, you know. Okay, so question number two is, and this is a good question as well, do Sasquatch have underfur like other fur-bearing animals? Because the more northerly climates, how else would they keep warm and survive the winters? Well, I can only speak to what I saw fairly close. I don't I don't recall seeing anything like that. The hair was very thick, but I don't recall seeing any difference. It looked like the same hair. And Force uh, may have some input on that, too. Well, yeah. I was going to say, you know, you have your Japanese macaques that live in a, a very winter, wintry climate in Japan. And uh, uh, on the same token, we have a... Uh, a troop that lives down here in Texas that escaped and um, they do quite well in both climates. So I think they're just like any other animal. Uh, you know, Tom, you and I are cat fanciers and uh, in the wintertime, even my cats in the house, uh, we put on a heavier coat. Um, I think it's something that, that is genetically uh, programmed in animals and, um, and, just like um, some animals are have heavier coats, and some uh, other than other animals which have lighter coats. So uh, you can have same species, and and uh, there'll be different levels of uh, hair coats on them. Uh, my horses do this. I have horses out here during the winter time that are just as slick as they are during the summer, and I just scratch my head and go, "How in the world can you stay warm?" But you know, you know, I can. They do. <laughs> that made that made me think about my second encounter. The first one, it was it was really thick. The hair it had a lot of hair on it, and uh-huh. and the smaller one did also. It was almost a carbon copy. The first one, it was just smaller in proportion. Uh, but years later, when I had the second sighting, that one was more like I, I guess compared to the Patterson Sasquatch, it was it wasn't as anywhere near as thick. The hair on its body. Here's a question. Yeah, I- it's like individual humans. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so if, if is there a possibility? What do you think about the uh, about Sasquatch? We're getting into speculation, but going going on your uh, experience with primates, chimps, and macaques and gorillas, uh, do they shed if the if the climate changes and it gets hot, or are they like us and you got hair, you got hair, and that's it? Well, um, I mean, we shed. I mean, you may not be aware of it, but a human sheds their hair, uh, and just the same as animals do. Um, uh, I've got very, very long hair, and I can attest to that when I have to clean my drain out in my shower all the time. <laughs> and I go, oh, all the hair that I've lost, you think I'd be bald. But, uh, you know, we grow it back, but we shed all the time. And uh, animals do it, too. And I think that it's, it kind of goes on an individual basis. But, I mean, I've seen pictures of them, uh, Reese's macaques, they got down here in South Texas, 
and they obviously do not as have have as Harriet a heavy a hair coat as ones that you would find in Japan. So uh, I mean, I think it uh, animals had a have a marvelous way of adapting to to wherever they're at. So uh, yeah, and sometimes it occurs quite rapidly. It's not like you're going to go out in the woods, though, folks, and find big gobs of Sasquatch here on a brush. On a brush. Oh, no, no. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Now, my colleague was the opposite. He would he would leave big gobs of hair on things. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he he does shed. I'm sure he would have. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, um, we all do. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that, uh, yeah, we do shed and um, we just grow it back. So, and we grow it back faster than we shed because I have to make frequent trips to the barbershop. See, and we thought we were just going bald because of, you know, male pattern baldness, but we're actually shedding. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, I'm sticking with that story. <laughs> My story, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> You know, there was something okay. I, I was going to... Oh, go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. If we got more questions. Well, I was going to... This this gentleman wants to know, Dear Mr. Jevening, I recently listened to some of your Creek Devil episodes. You stated you only answer questions in episodes so so everybody can get the benefit of the answers and the question. And that's true. So awesome, in my honest opinion. But I can't watch every episode due to fluctuating work constraints. But I would like to know if your answer, if you answer, if you will give one. Okay, if I'm reading that correctly. If you can directly tell people the show and episode. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, so, um, so I guess what he's asking is when we ask and answer a question, if we can state the uh the episode oh, good point i believe this is going to be episode 164 is that right right I, I do want to mention something though since you were on that particular topic you know we've been asking people uh on the midweek show since we're not doing commentaries after the reading if they would forward questions or comments to us and then we'll address that on the weekend show so tom this past wednesday I think that was uh, Bigfoot in History 19, if I'm correct. Yep. Um, <clears throat> the picture on the card has a direct correlation to you and your family uh, and an incident that was mentioned in that particular chapter. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, thanks for reminding me. Okay, so that was from my uncle, who his, uh, and I call him my uncle, it's my aunt's. Uh, husband he um his family his dad and mom both worked for the forest service in northern california and he worked uh his dad worked there uh in the 50s and 60s and that is the actual uh there, there's a story where they talk about in there of the um you know the road grader that had the tire taken, rolled down the hill a little bit, and then thrown across the ravine. Well, he gave some details in there that I don't think are in that story. And what he said is they would have swampers come in behind when they're because they're making new roads into the into the forest for for logging. 
and the swamp, as the road grader goes along, it leaves debris behind, you know, large rocks and debris and that sort of thing. So the swampers would pick this stuff up and throw it into the side of the road. So, you know, you got a fairly clean road. And they were predominantly from one of the local tribes. Well, when they got up there, they found, uh, because they would leave the tire. It's like a 700-pound tire. They would leave it up uh, next to the road graders. Absolutely no sense. And hauling this spare up and down from the camp to the road grader every day. So they come up there one morning, no tire. It's gone. And they finally, as, as the story stated, they'd rolled it down and thrown it across to the opposite ravine. And so the foreman said, well, I got a great idea. What we're going to do is we're going to take this, I think it was a skitter cable. I hope I got that terminology correct. And we'll run it down, we'll wrap it around the tire, and we'll just haul it up, you know, that way. And we'll send the swampers down to do that. And this, the response from the swampers was not just no, but oh, heck no, we're not going down there. <laughs> that must have been, they must have been from either the Hoopa or the Yurok tribes. I think so. Because yeah. yeah. we're talking about the Bluff Creek area. And in Green, where I first read the story was in Green's books. And, and there was a lot of things that were happening back then, late 50s, early 60s, where like that tire was, was rolled down and thrown across the ravine. And uh, other crews found, you know, 55-gallon drums full of diesel tossed around. I actually met one of the guys that was on that crew and talked to him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, there was, it was scared the hell out of us. There was a, a bunch of stuff. And those, you know, things like that are heavy. There's a lot of weight to them. So they, I don't know if they were just unhappy or messing around or what they were doing, but they were they were doing stuff to the equipment in that area when they first started, you know, punching in roads and logging those areas. Well, what does diesel weigh? I think it's about six pounds a gallon, something like that. So you times that by fifty-five, it comes out to that's a heavy fifty-five gallon drum to it just is. pick up yeah. and haul off into the forest. So um, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of things going on. Interesting, uh, my aunt asked me to look, do some research uh, for my uncle, uh, for his family. And I called up the um, Siskiyou, I think it's the Siskiyou Community Museum or, or uh, anyway, there's a museum up there. And I talked to the lady who runs the museum. She's a retired police officer. And I didn't tell her what it was i just said oh mm -hmm. yeah and i mentioned you know the tire and just like we we're talking about the price of pork bellies and beans she said oh yeah you mean bigfoot <laughs> people are kind of like that up there yeah and it's just just as common as can be it's like oh yeah the, the, the oh yeah bigfoot and then she went on and she did the research and found the stuff that uh, we we're looking for but i thought that was interesting so, folks, that's that was the direct correlation since Tom Tom actually is related to the person who this happened to. Yep. Yeah. And and here's the the other thing, real quick, that I thought was interesting. This happened before the Patty film. Quite a bit before. Yes, quite a bit before. So, the Indians that were the swampers, they had some tribal knowledge that they must have known what was going on and they were like oh no no we're not going down there well and even the term creek devil comes from the hoopas 
Now that I did not know. I knew it came from one of the native tribes. Yeah, but. let me, I have, actually have it right here in front of me in case it would come up again. But um, it actually, there was um, a number of terms they use, you know, Oma, Oma, ah, things like that. Um, and I can't even pronounce this one, but it says Creek Devil, Boss of the Mountain. Well, this is actually Yurok, not the Ahubas, I'm sorry. Says uh, California Yurok Indian terminology is spelled Uma U apostrophe M A H. Other variations symbolizing a hair covered boss of the mountain, or in some instances, local creek devils, huh. who were once believed to poison streams in the Blue Creek region of Siskiyou Wilderness, Northern California. Well, Blue Creek is the adjacent creek to Bluff Creek. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Interesting. So that is the origin of the name of our show. Well, there we go. All right. And I don't want to ask how they poison the streams, but we have ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and don't drink the water. That's right. Don't drink the water. <laughs> well, we got time for a little another question if we have one, Tom. We do. We have a real good one. This is from Lisa. And Lisa moved to Puyallup, as she was taught to pronounce it, due to the wind blowing. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, okay. Tacoma Aroma <laughs> from the title oh, flats. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so this is all stuff that you know about. Oh, yes. In, in 1979, she was 10 years old. Uh, she lived there for 30-plus years in the area of Bonneville, and I know where that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Forest Green, Cherokee Park, and the Puyallup Screamer. Right. So, and her uncle was stationed as SRG on Fort Lewis. I'm mm -hmm. assuming that means sergeant? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Probably. Uh, her question. In many years of experience and investigations of my area, can a single Sasquatch take an interest in in a single human and try to in initiate contact with that human both and both species children over the course of years and areas it is possible i've heard of a couple of accounts like that i'm not sure you know how true they are but uh going back to what we investigated at yakult and and it was interesting and again going back to uh you know this kind of goes back to the you know the infants and young uh, we talked about just a little bit ago where the family there, you know, one of the people on my team talked to the little boys. They had two little boys. One was five or six, and the other one was about three or four years old. And the boys were out playing all day, all the time. And she asked the little boys if they'd seen anything. And she, she says, well, you mean, you mean the big monkey and these two boys? And, and apparently the Sasquatches, when just the two young children were out in the yard playing, would come right up the male and the two juveniles would come right up to the fence and stand there and, and they would look at the kids. Well, now that's a little unnerving. Yeah, once we found that out, yeah, the, the mother was very upset because she didn't think they were seeing anything in the daytime, but the creatures were actually coming right up there in the daytime. And it wasn't bears? No, no, there were no bears there. Because the little, <laughs> little six-year-old, he said, the, the big monkey and these two boys. Well, do you remember the guy... I apologize, I don't remember his name. We had him on oh, a couple of years ago who, when he was a kid, had a sighting of a, this was up in uh, the Tillamook area, Hillsboro, 
up in uh, northwest Oregon of seeing a monkey sitting on a stump. Yes, I remember that. And it was kind of weird because he said, even though the thing, if I recall right, it didn't look at him. He says, I just knew that it was aware of my presence. Right, right. And that was a juvenile. Yeah, very, very young one. Absolutely. Well, that's all I've got today for Jenny, questions. Jenny Goodall talks about uh, her interaction with uh, monkeys over the years and uh, long-term friendships that she formed with them, as well as with um, her child that she had out there in the, uh, her research area. You know, I think, you know, going back to Yakult, I think that we were on the verge of having some kind of, I, I think the creatures would have actually come out where we would have seen them because we had we had boundaries that we respected both sides did and we didn't interfere interfere in their area at night when they were in there hunting or whatever they were doing and they would leave the area so we could go out there in the daytime only and we kept that going for nine months uh, until an outsider came in and disturbed the entire setting and uh destroyed the relationship but I, i really think that it was they were coming around coming around more and i really felt that they were on the verge of showing themselves to us in the daytime. Yeah, I know she she had relocated uh, some chimpanzees um, for their safety, and uh, they were placed on an island. And um, the chimpanzee actually came up and um, hugged her. You know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, chimps and cocks, apes, they hug, they kiss just like we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I guess one of the most moving things, and you can actually find it out there on YouTube if you look it up, is where an elderly chimpanzee, female chimpanzee, was dying. Oh, I saw and, that. And the man that had done research with her, uh, I mean, it moved me to tears because this uh, chimpanzee, uh, she hadn't seen him in years, but he had done research with her when she was younger. And... Here she was dying, so the uh, location where she was at, the people called and told him, and he actually came to see her, and it was heartbreaking because she was, like, in patting her heart, and, you know, they, you know, she was actually indicating to him that she had love for him, that she missed him, and she was hugging him, and he right. was hugging her. Oh, I'm going to make myself cry now. Uh, and, you know... I don't think, you know, we we sometimes think that, uh, well, I do think that they're probably not the nicest of critters, but I I also think that uh, amongst themselves, they probably exhibit a lot of uh, human reactions the same as us, and maybe under given better circumstances, they might even uh, react that way to us, but usually we don't react so well to them. I just had a thought about that. <laughs> it reminds me of a cartoon from the 60s where, you know, you probably know what I'm talking about here. You know, I'm, I'm going to hug him and I'm going to squeeze him and I'm going to call him George. <laughs> oh. oh, gosh. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap this segment up, folks, and stay tuned for the next piece. In Bigfoot history, 
Nikoman Island, near Mission, British Columbia, May 31, 1965. Mrs. Seraphin Jasper told me she saw a Sasquatch in a field across the highway from a home in daylight. It was tall, covered with black hair, it kept moving around, and the cows tended to wander over and stare at it. It scared her to keep watching it, and she did not see it leave. This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, Government Indian Agent Teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C.V. Tench, illustrated by T.T. Muneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair, who have figured in redskin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct but the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs, they are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men would be quite beyond their powers. I am convinced, said Mr. Burns, that survivors of the Sasquatch do still inhabit the inaccessible interior of British Columbia. Only by sheer luck, however, is a white man likely to sight one of them, because, like wild animals, they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, and in that rocky country it is impossible to track them down. I still live in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens, I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick, growth of black woolly hair. 
In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled, to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more the red man took to his heels. Well-nigh dazed from exhaustion, he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then, with his rifle at the ready, he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse and whispered to his squaw and children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning, the Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. Before proceeding to relate further incidents connecting with the mysterious Sasquatch, I ought to explain that for the past fifteen years I have occupied a government position as Indian agent stationed at the Chehalis Indian Reserve, some sixty-odd miles from Vancouver, British Columbia. My charges are also my friends, and because I have always reciprocated their regard, endeavoring to help them in every way possible, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic 
which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, a place of the wild men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic period of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the red men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in this section of the country. They were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand-to-hand with war clubs on the mountainsides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight-foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct. The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face. He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Mora's Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators, the red men believe, that individual Indians have encountered. Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. They were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers. The expedition that failed. In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch detecting the approach of so many strangers would immediately go into hiding, The Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, 
They had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here, Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago, three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit, we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder. We peered inside the opening, but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it and began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story warned us not to venture near the cave again as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch, but we paid no attention to them and went off to examine the cave once more. To our great disappointment and surprise, we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, and we were quite unable to move it. Some years later, I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle, the creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first I was terribly scared, but... His eyes looked kind, and he asked me to sit down and talk. 
He told me that during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish, and meat just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. The Wild Woman There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains, said Charlie in his terse Indian dialect. They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them, nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another. But the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way. I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later something shot out of that hole. I fired and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it, and then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I am sure if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared and Instinctively, I lifted my rifle in case I had to defend myself. The wild woman ran toward the boy, bent over him, and then turned on me savagely, her eyes like balls of fire. And in the Douglas dialect, she growled, You have hurt my friend! I explained in the same language, I am part Douglas myself, that I had mistaken the boy for a bear and was very sorry for the accident. Anyway, I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. She made no reply, but, picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods. I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white-skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September when Indian hop-pickers 
were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. It was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September while with the hop pickers there? It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adeline August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. We were walking on the railroad track when Adeline noticed someone walking along the grade coming toward us. I also saw this person and first thought it another man walking the tracks as we were. But as he came closer, we noticed that his appearance was very strange, and on coming still closer, we halted in amazement and alarm. We saw that the man wore no clothing at all and was covered with hair like an animal. We were both very frightened. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. His eyes were very large and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance. Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran, I looked back as I ran and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity, as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcasts On May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist today. In fact, thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as, in response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than two thousand red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle 
then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, surrounded by important dignitaries and others. Absolutely ignoring the entire groups, Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. The white speaker is wrong. To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still all around here. I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman, whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia. During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield, a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. In the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then virgin wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes. That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first, Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek that churned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking. As he came within view of his campsite, he looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, King stopped and unslung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear and close to his eyes, a giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness and that he was seeing things. 
Then it slowly dawned upon him that, through the glasses, he was actually getting a close-up of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars, until, a few minutes later, the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp. He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that the wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall, an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfall they had bagged. Suddenly, a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Some time later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian named Frank Dan, who asserts that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village and seeing that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with the Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long, now very old. Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, she was kidnapped by a wild giant and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What happened to Seraphine Long? Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. I was walking down towards home one day, many years ago, carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Qualak, Thunderbolt, I was soon to marry. Suddenly, at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out, and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified, fought, and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong. 
but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. Holding me easily under one arm with his other hand, he smeared tree gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying. Then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids, and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch, and much better preserved than we preserve them. A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave, there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on, I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave, Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, which is not unlike the Douglas dialect, I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats, and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands, I guess that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak, and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to take me back to my own people. At first he got very angry as did his father and mother, but I kept on pleading with them, telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, because one day after I cried for a long time, the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum. With this he stuck down my eyelids as he had done before, then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain. 
When we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home, he put me down and gently removed the tree gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. I just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article, the few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast, unexplored interior. And like the Indians, I also believe. Copyright J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January 1940, Volume 84, Number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story. Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story Number 1, Australia. Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15, 2009. Australian News, April 2009. Two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katoomba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Addie Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told All News web reporter Jaden Cassidy, We were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state, Ingrid commented. The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. There have been many recent sightings there. 
Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence. Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains, along with some other locals, continue to believe that the Yahweh might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big. They're all hairy. They're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat. But they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, Yaren in China, Nguoi Rung in Vietnam, and the Yowie in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall. And this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or Abominable Snowman, a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three. Alaska Magazine, September 1998. Volume 64, Number 7 Nathan, the Brushman By Velma Wallace Sasquatch, or something like it, appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Nathan, the Brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Nathan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet some believed. It is said that the Natan, also called brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. 
Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Natan. He would hover behind bushes, spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brushman still exists. In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Natan and later returned. Although the Natan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Natan. My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter. The startled man looked up and then ran away. Jeffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Natan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs because there would have been tracks, and camp robbers, gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays, always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the brush man sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. Perhaps the spirits of those long ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright, Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of story number three. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959. Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane, where it stalked teenagers. The orange eyes creature first gained notice on March 28, 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's Riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in, 
forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, and chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but they found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the bees ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster, just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights, to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June 23, 2001, 10.38 a.m. This sounds like an urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head Report from Richland County, Ohio, Vintage 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly, there he was, less than 15 feet in front of me. I am a 73-year-old man, and when I was 13 years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on its back, coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side. It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune, looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Well, mind you, at this time of my life, I had never heard of Yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. This figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair and a hairless, pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that an occasional, you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. 
His arms were to his side, and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish, reddish face, which floated out of the water. I'd say from the front of where his ears should be to the front of his face. His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man. He showed no facial expression, only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog, not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me. I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. Having never heard of these creatures... I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. I was always interested in animals. I never ever saw anything like this. As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me, and we had an eye-to-eye -eye connection, which only lasted a few seconds. I can't say for sure, but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color. He felt kindly to me not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and it's clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. Well, they didn't pay much attention to me and thought I had seen a seal or a walrus or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it, and kind of forgot it after many years, Later I began to hear and read about Bigfoot and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish-white, and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more, but finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though the, what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to 
help understand what's going on, you may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J. from Maine. Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.